and welcome to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To learn more about solar storage and everything else, go to solar, S-E-A-N, that's solarshawn.com. Today, we are talking to David Bliss. David Bliss is the CEO of Faraday Microgrids. Hey, David. Nice to see you, Sean. How are you? Great, David. Thanks for being on the podcast. Recently, instead of me introducing people, I will let David introduce himself. So go ahead, David, and tell us about yourself. Thanks, uh, Sean. I am the CEO and founder of Faraday Microgrids, and we're a turnkey organization that develops, designs, engineers, builds, and in some cases owns and operates renewable energy microgrids. And this comes on the heels of my background as a surgeon, and I remain a practicing surgeon here in the state of California as well. Wow, I did see that you had a doctor shirt on. That's pretty neat. I guess we can call you two different types of MDs. You're a microgrid doctor and a medical doctor. Oh, I like that description. You know, that's an original one. I may steal that. It's all yours. One thing that I was just looking at, too, was just different definitions in the National Electrical Code, because that's what I do is I train people about things like the National Electrical Code. And there is different definitions about microgrids. And one of them is healthcare microgrid system or healthcare microgrid. And I'll just read what that means. A group of interconnected loads and distributed energy resources within clearly defined boundaries that acts as a single controllable entity with respect to the utility. So do you have one of those while you're doing surgery? (laughs) I wish. In fact, very few hospitals, if any, have these other than the couple that we've built them on, which I'm sure we'll end up talking about. No, as a matter of fact, well, I suppose if we define that more broadly, the answer is yes, every hospital in America does have that if you include in the definition backup diesel generators, because in essence, that's a diesel microgrid. It can take over running the all the loads. It's geographically distinct. It operates independent of the utility. So in the broadest sense, that does qualify. But when we're talking about renewable energy microgrids, we're obviously referencing things like solar, wind, geothermal, and the like. Yeah, I know there's a lot of special requirements in the National Electrical Code for hospitals, and apparently also for healthcare microgrids. I don't suppose they mean yoga centers when they're talking about healthcare. <laughs> no, well, you've lighted on a very important topic. And since you mentioned the National Electrical Code, the National Fire Protection Association, I know you know this, but this is for your listeners. The National Fire Protection Association sets a lot of the standards that then become our National Electrical Code. In fact, that's NFPA 70, right? It's the National yes, Electrical Code. That's the NEC. Right. And so that in turn informs what regulatory agencies use as their standards for specific types of buildings, with healthcare being its own vertical. So within the NFPA are two important subsets of regulations. One is NFPA 99, and the other is NFPA 110. And those are used to determine the nature of energy systems, how they have to operate, what they have to serve within healthcare facilities, what kind of facilities have to have them. And then those are used by entities like the Healthcare Access and Information Regulatory Agency in California, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services at the federal level, and a number of other regulatory organizations. It's a long-standing, very robust system. It goes back to, I think, 1982 is when NFPA was 99 was first organized. 
Yeah, and I really hate it when they're doing a heart transplant on me and the power goes down. That's kind of a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think many people think about this. A friend of mine who's a physician had to have an operation and he asked me, what happens if I'm on the operating room table and there's an earthquake? And I said, well, that's a very rare scenario, but there are backup power systems. And lo and behold, while he was having his operation, he was awake for this operation. There was an earthquake in Los Angeles. The power system shut down as it's required to do. But the backup power system, in this case, diesel generator, came right up and they were able to complete the operation. So I know you're being a bit tongue in cheek, but the reality is speaking to this as a clinician, the last thing you want is for your healthcare organization to be rendered inoperable because there's a problem with the utilities. We've all seen the heat emergencies, you know, water surges, storm surges, hurricanes, tropical storms. The list is is endless. And, and when those make hospitals go down, it's a big problem for the communities they serve. Yeah, I know there's a guy that's in Berkeley. His name's Hal Aronson. And mm-hmm. he has an organization with his wife, who's a surgeon, and they go to Africa and they figured out what's the biggest solar system that they can put in a suitcase. And mm-hmm. apparently mm-hmm. they're doing like, you know, birthing and all kinds of stuff with kerosene and things like that and bad grids and things like that. And so they've got, you know, solar power and batteries to really make a difference. I mean, for them, probably just a light bulb is a huge difference. The name of that organization is We Care Solar, so it's WeCareSolar.org. Fantastic. Well, in resource-constrained environments, and do have friends that work in South America, in Africa, and Asia, you're glad to have whatever you might have with respect to energy. I mean, even a little bit of power generation storage and the discretion to use it can be the difference between saving lives and not being able to help people. And I think Americans would be surprised to see how many parts of the world really don't have consistent power the way we do in the U.S. Uh, We're very spoiled in some respects. Not to say there aren't problems and it isn't very expensive, but it is an impressive machine, our national grid. Wow. And so you obviously have your hands full doing surgery and being a CEO of a microgrid company. How does that work? I guess, you know, once you're smart in one area, it's pretty easy to transfer it over to another area. But, you know, you've got all this terminology. There's only so much room in your brain. I guess, like I said before, a lot of the science is the same. Chemistry isn't different for the medical profession and for the electrical profession. But how do you make the time to learn about, you know, microgrids and what you're doing, renewable energy, and to go in there and be a surgeon at the same time? Well, thankfully, I started this company about 12 years ago when I was already a well-established surgeon and very comfortable in that practice. And so the amount of energy and effort required as compared to somebody who's still an early learner or like is very different. And as you point out, science is a great background to have to go into the technical arena because it gives you a language to speak to these things. (laughs) Funny enough, I'm sort of a frustrated engineer. A lot of my Mm -hmm. friends are electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, civil engineers. And I've always been interested in and fascinated by the things that they do. So for me, this was a really fun challenge to say, how can I learn a new language, you know, electrical engineering? How can I learn a new set of processes, which is to say the integration of these resources, but also the business piece of it? So, you know, there were bumps along the way. And I would say more than anything, that part has been really fun for me. I don't think of myself as an especially intelligent or adept person. And 
In fact, doctors are notorious for being not so great business people. But I've been very fortunate to have some good folks along the way to educate me and mentor me. The mistakes I've made have been certainly surmountable and thankfully have worked out okay and have been good learning experiences. And then, of course, I've been surrounded by a really great team that's been able to execute things. And I can be more on the vision and mission side as opposed to the execution side. Yeah, I know somebody else who's a medical doctor at Kaiser. I won't say her name or I could just say her first name, Jean. And she also has a solar company and I've done some work with her being on a board and things like that. So you're not the only one. No, I think as you, as all of us get more mature, you make decisions about, you know, do you stay on the path that you're on? And often that's perfectly great and sufficiently interesting. And it probably would have been, but I also like to be challenged and I like to grow and feel like I'm contributing. And a big reason why I got into this space was I really felt that I needed to do something to try to contribute to the health of the planet. I also, as a surgeon, but also as a parent, was interested in seeing the world be made a little bit better place. And so part of my motivation for getting into this space was to help to green our energy system, to try to bring clean energy to disadvantaged communities, and hopefully leave the earth at least a stable, if not better place for my son and for subsequent generations. Well, it seems also with microgrids, especially if you did a microgrid at a hospital or healthcare facility, there would be a lot of crossover where in things that you might understand the reasons behind that a regular electrician wouldn't, you know, like hooking up heart machines and things like that. I think I do get a little bit of a special perspective on what emergency equipment really is and what it's there to serve. I think the electricians and the general public obviously have have a reasonable sense of what might be going on inside the hospital, but I've been involved with hospital design off and on since the late 90s, not to mention, you know, being a physician for about 35 years now. So, yeah, that's afforded me a lot of insights. I would add, because of the combination of my background as a physician and then my company, I was invited to join the regulatory body in California for healthcare called the Healthcare Access and Information. And I've been the vice chair of the advisory board and chair of the energy committee, et cetera. That's also given me a view into the regulatory side. So I see this as kind of a triangle where there's the clinicians and, and administrators trying to operate facilities and provide the best care. There's the contractors and electricians and folks trying to upgrade and improve and green the energy systems. And there's the regulators who have to make sure that both are done safely and that the public good is served in the process. So that's been a really interesting different set of languages to learn and to integrate together. And it's led me to participate in the rewriting of NFPA 99 standards in 2020. And uh, some of our work has contributed to the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services issuing what's called a categorical waiver on their conditions for participation that now allow hospitals to choose to use distributed energy resources like microgrids in lieu of diesel generators. And that's a groundbreaking, really critical evolution in the course of healthcare power. I imagine that a hospital uses a lot of power and energy. So I guess giving up on diesel altogether might be really difficult because you would need a lot of batteries and a lot of inverters. There's no question that diesel generators, some people will call them prime movers, have a fantastic track record of reliability, safety, and their costs are well known. So 
you know, the healthcare industry is a very conservative industry naturally, and they want to do the safest thing. So diesel has long been the standard. And when I started this company, I literally had dozens of healthcare experts tell me that that would never change and that I was barking up the wrong tree. So diesels remain a, a really fantastic resource in the sense of their performance. Where we run into problems is, of course, their emissions are really problematic, particularly in places like California. They're all cost and no benefit, meaning you can't operate them routinely. So you have to pay for the capital cost. You have to pay for maintaining the fuel and switching out the fuel periodically. And you have to do all the documentation and maintenance and care of these systems, but you don't get any productivity out of them. So I think folks have started to say, well, yes, that's that's fantastic for reliability and resiliency and safety, but can we achieve the same goals while also being cost-effective and green? So fast forward to your point, yes, if you're going to do it with batteries, you have to have very substantial battery systems, or if you're going to do it with solar and batteries, very large solar arrays. But this is frankly entirely achievable. And by way of example, our current project that we're just about to commission at the uh, Kaiser Permanente in Ontario, California, uh, has about nine megawatt hours of battery. And that, along with the solar that's been built and the existing fuel cell, we believe will be sufficient to support the hospital for 10 hours at a time and perhaps even longer, depending on how the hospital operates its loads under emergency conditions. Wow. So you're using fuel cells. That's interesting. Well, the fuel cell pre-existed us in this case. It's a one megawatt fuel cell that was already in place. And we've collaborated with this fuel cell company on another healthcare microgrid project. So we're technology agnostic. And I think we see the future of fuel cells being hydrogen fuel cells. And so long as that hydrogen is produced in a green fashion, we really have a soup to nut solution that can be the least carbon footprint possible. On that job, are you making the hydrogen using electrolyzers and the electricity from the solar arrays and then storing the well, hydrogen? So it's funny you mention that. In this particular case, no, because the contract preceded us. And so the hospital and the fuel cell company are using a different fuel resource. But it's funny you ask because we're actually in the midst of developing a green hydrogen generation project here in the state of California. And I can't release a lot of information yet, but that is looking at using solar energy only stored in co-located batteries to then produce clean hydrogen from water using electrolyzers. Yes, our hope is to be a supplier, or at least the, the developer builder of this system to be a supplier of clean hydrogen for all kinds of hydrogen applications. Yeah, I've even heard that, you know, people talk about the grid of the future and, and also airplanes, you know, hydrogen powered airplanes. And so they just have an electrical distribution center going to electrolyzers at the airport, and then they can use that hydrogen to power airplanes, which is kind of a neat thing, too. Yeah, I think hydrogen is, I think, going to be the natural gas of our future in the sense that it's going to be ubiquitously available it will eventually become inexpensive and it can run a whole number of different technologies, right? It can be used in combustion engines. So conventional generators can be converted to use hydrogen, at least as part of their fuel, not eventually the entire fuel. 
There's already, I think, one or two commercial airplane companies that are producing hydrogen-powered airplanes. We're all certainly familiar with fuel cell-based trucks and cars, and those are running on hydrogen, and there's even an infrastructure to fill their tanks with hydrogen. And it's remarkably safe, reproducible, and clean. Not to say there aren't challenges. You know, it is a different gas than natural gas to manage. But ultimately, the beauty of it is it's the cleanest energy resource other than the sun that you can come up with. Yeah, I was at the ACES conference, the American Solar Energy Society conferences, just about a week and a half ago. And the deputy director from NREL, Peter Green, gave a speech. And he Mm -hmm. was saying we're going from electrons to molecules. And so he was referencing how we could take hydrogen, which is made from electricity and water, and then we can do things like turn it into fuels. So we just add carbon dioxide, and then we can get, you know, all the types of regular fuels that we're used to using. You know, we can make plastic, you know, whatever. Right. Well, I think you've lighted on something that a friend of mine, you know, one of the guys who mentored me early on pointed out. Our traditional view of energy is that is there available to us, and the moment that we need it, the system should turn on to produce it and supply it. So that's why fossil fuels were such a brilliant discovery for the you know, 150, 200 years that they've been in use because it's a perfect storage molecule for a ton of energy. In fact, we're very inefficient at what we use. The problem is that that requires, number one, all of the emissions that come with that, not the least of which is the CO2 and the problems with climate change. Number two is it's a finite resource and we are eventually going to run out of that. What's really interesting in the sense of hydrogen and these other molecules is Now you can actually produce the chemical or the molecule that's holding the energy for you and store it indefinitely and use it when you need to. And so you don't have to have the ability to go get the material right when you need it and produce energy. You can actually be producing the source all the time, store it and be ready to go in one of many different fashions. So now the the generation system becomes independent of the load system. And that's where storage, storage within a molecule like hydrogen or storage within an electrochemical battery or storage in other forms of batteries becomes critical because that becomes essentially in the broad sense like a fossil fuel where now you've packed all that energy into different resources and that becomes the reservoir instead of having to pump it out of the ground. Well said. So I noticed that you named your company Faraday Microgrids. And I assume that you probably studied about Michael Faraday, who studied electromagnetism, came up with the Faraday cage. I bet you you studied that in physics class when you were doing pre-med. Not only did I study that, I actually started out wanting to be a physics major when I went to college. Not only did I study Faraday, I just visited his lab at Cambridge in England, literally just about three weeks ago. I mean, obviously, great story. There's his equations and there's his work on electromagnetism, et cetera. So it's, you know, fantastic individual in the world of science, not to mention in specific around electricity. So, yeah, it's a tip of the hat to history. And I think the kind of technologies that we're employing and, you know, I think it's great to honor some of the folks that made these extraordinary discoveries, especially given that they did this at a time where they didn't have the sophisticated tools like the computers that we have. They just had their minds. Mm -hmm. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about Michael Faraday. Well, he was a scientist in England who was interested in electricity and electromagnetism and became, I think, one of the youngest PhDs to ever graduate. I believe he graduated from the University of Cambridge. I'm not certain if he graduated from Oxford. This is one where I, I 
get a little bit confused. He became one of the youngest professors at Cambridge in its history. And the classic thing that, that people ascribe to him is the Faraday cage, which is he showed that electrons will travel around the outside of a sphere. And you can stand inside of the sphere and not be affected by that current at all. And, you know, because people thought that you would be electrocuted. And so that's the principle of the Faraday cage. But he also was instrumental in describing electromagnetism and magnetic fields and a number of things that serve to support how we conceive of, for example, maglev trains in Japan, you know, how the principle of how you lift those trains off the tracks with uh, magnetism. A lot goes back to, to Michael Faraday. Faraday, I remember studying him. I need to restudy Faraday because it's been a long time, but I've always been fascinated by all these Einstein types. I want to absorb some of their knowledge. I've always found it fascinating that these folks look at the world and see things that none of us imagine, much less would understand how to figure out mathematically. You know, the math is not intuitive, and they had to make breakthroughs. And often, by the way, face insurmountable or nearly insurmountable obstacles of all the older professors saying, this is crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. And, and of course, the young guard becomes the old guard. And, you know, I, I love the story kind of jumping around here a bit, but Einstein who described the general theory of relativity and the photoelectric effect and a number of other things, went on to really have trouble with quantum mechanics. And he and Niels Bohr and other scientists used to get into these arguments where he would call it spooky action at a distance, was what he called quantum mechanics. And he sort of, by the time he was an older guy, was pushing back against the younger scientists because it had exceeded his ability to fully conceive of how that worked. Yeah, that quantum entanglement, that is kind of spooky action at a distance. <laughs> I'm stealing that directly from Einstein. That was his description. Uh -huh. And he meant that in a pejorative way. You know, he, he meant that to say, this doesn't make sense to me that you could be at an infinite distance. Because, of course, he was very tied to the speed of light being the limiting factor in the universe. So quantum entanglement violates that principle entirely. And honestly, like him, I have trouble with it. But it seems to be the case, and that's the basis of quantum computing. I know. I'm trying to figure out how to use quantum entanglement to win the lottery. I'm, <laughs> I'm setting up my machine right now. Maybe you can give me a hand. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever seen any of the quantum computers they have at MIT or, or Harvard? I haven't seen them, no. They go back to, if you're my age, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 60. If you're my age, you go back to the era when computers filled massive rooms and you had to have punch cards and that sort of thing. And nobody ever imagined that you would have this thing sitting on your lap or on your desk. So the quantum computers look like that. They're massive and their computing power right now is actually fairly minimal. But it's obviously only a matter of time before they figure out how to manipulate that and uh, make them more effective. And then the computing power will be just outrageous. And the next level of discoveries will be, I'm sure, things that you and I can't even imagine, much less, you know, sort out. So I'm sure they're going to be able to make a real nice microgrid controller for you. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, the, the microgrid controller thing is interesting. I, I will point out to your folks that are listening, there's a bunch of evolving standards coming out from the national safety laboratories like Underwriters Laboratory, Intertech, as well as IEEE that will affect microgrid controllers, certainly in critical applications. And we have our own microgrid controller. So we're going through the UL listing process and the IEEE certification process because that's going to be required by regulators in, in healthcare pretty soon. 
whereas that was the wild west only a year or two ago you could you know stand up your own controller and have it do whatever you wish that technology is going to get standardized but to your point about what the future holds for those i would say the future in the short term lies in machine learning and artificial intelligence because the ability of those machines to self teach taking circumstantial data meaning what are systems doing how are they then performing what are the impacts good or bad and then adjusting in real time means that you can take the whole human interface out of it and have something that's self tuning and improving constantly over time only to the benefit of the site where the microgrid lies the grid as a whole i mean it's it'll be an impressive next iteration yeah and i guess the thing about a microgrid if you look at the nec definition of it it has the ability to connect to the grid and then disconnect from the grid so when you're connected to the grid i'm assuming that you know with all this artificial intelligence and future quantum computing and controllers and things like that we're going to be having lots of virtual power plants vpps and then yes when you disconnect from the grid say there's a big bad rainstorm in southern california which is happening while we're recording this practically you could kind of do the same thing on the micro scale how do you see that you can so i think it's useful to understand that there's two large scenarios in which microgrids can isolate from and resynchronize with the grid so there's a mechanical method to do this you can interpose disconnect switches the most common would be automatic transfer switches and you can think of those as toggles that connect to or disconnect from the grid and allow you to be physically isolated or physically connected so that the microgrid if it's on the side of the automatic transfer switch or ATS that's on the site now the microgrid can operate freely support the site and it's doing so entirely independent of the grid and then when the grid comes back up the ATS can resynchronize with the grid when that signal is adequate it can close the connection so now you're reconnected to the grid and the microgrid can continue to serve the facility but now does it in a supplementary fashion to the grid and nowadays those kind of things can be done almost blinklessly the other mechanism to do this which is a little bit more sophisticated and frankly challenges a lot of regulators and regulatory requirements is you can set the microgrid controller to define no export across the meter so that you can isolate not in the physical sense but in the sense of not sending any electrons to the utility so in other words when the utility goes down for whatever reason the microgrid senses this it meets the loads within the site or facility but meets them up to and only to, to the point that they require and no more so that it never sends a meaningful amount of electrons towards utility cuz utility has to protect its line workers from injury if they're out doing work on damaged systems. So in California for example, we have rule 21, the, the California Public Utilities Commission rule 21 specifically requires that renewable energy systems or supplementary systems go down when the grid goes down unless they can be physically isolated and there's some language being considered about that second option where it's zero export but right now that would almost certainly be rejected by the utilities but anyway with that said you really kind of reimagine the whole bulk grid system so 
backing up to the 30,000 foot view, you know, right now we have this really wonderful centralized network of big generation that sends out tendrils everywhere and through its transmission and distribution system connects up to our homes, our businesses, facilities, whatever. And, you know, it's 98, 99% reliable. Now imagine that the future is you decentralize this. So now you've got microgrids everywhere. The utility becomes more of a distribution or redistribution and balancing network so that this distributed network now produces energy for its own local sites, but probably also exports to other users around the network. And the utilities and the ISOs act as the agents to sort of direct that power more so than to generate it. That will probably turn out to be an even more resilient scenario on the micro scale. Because if you're operating, let's say, a critical facility for food storage, you really can't afford to have the grid go down for any meaningful period of time because you will lose your entire inventory. Or if it's medication storage for patients that, that are critical, you know, like we have an insulin shortage in California. Well, what if you lost all the insulin supply from, you know, storage location? So, but now having the microgrid there means that you've got that protection against whatever centralized catastrophe might happen, and you can serve your own needs. And then finally, I would add the thing that people don't necessarily consider is the very nature of the utility is that costs will go up over time, particularly as they have to replace systems. So we've had a couple of uh, big nuclear facilities, uh, one of which has already been shut down, and another one of which will need to be shut down in the next couple of years. All of that infrastructure eventually needs to be replaced, and those are billions of dollars. And that cost has to be passed to the end user, be it businesses or homeowners and renters. So having a microgrid essentially fixes your cost for the energy that you produce, meaning to the extent that that continues to work for an extended period of time and has its own fixed cost for operating and maintaining, it doesn't have the escalating cost you have of acquiring fuel, of maintaining big centralized systems, and all the infrastructure required to distribute it. All right, Dave, how about some more topics? Do you want to throw some at me? Yeah, I, I think an important topic for your listeners to hear about is what some people call value stacking, which is really looking at the multi-layered values that renewable energy microgrids can bring to a given scenario. If you think about conventional single systems like solar, they're marvelous insofar as they produce a certain amount of energy on a reasonably predictable level across a wide time frame, which is to say over the course of a year or five years, 10 years, you know, you, you can know where it's coming, but you don't really have much say about when that energy is produced or used. When you add in batteries and a controller, or you take multiple resources, well, now you have the option to store that energy and use it whenever it's best for your purposes. So there's a number of things that you can get out of that. First of all, you can time shift the solar and what a lot of folks may not recognize is that the value of solar in terms of offsetting utility costs has actually plummeted because the utilities have kind of, I suppose, in one sense of phrase, wised up and they've lowered the price of midday power or afternoon power and they've raised the price of evening power. So for most of us or those who pay time of use, your most expensive period is actually 4 to 9 or 5 to 9 p.m. when solar is otherwise not producing. So all that marvelous you know, sun-based power is really not helping you as much as it could. However, if you put that into the batteries and put it back into the building or your home in the evening, you're now maximizing the value of those electrons. In a similar sense, there's for businesses fees called demand fees. 
And if you're not a business owner, this won't be familiar territory. But if you were to see the bill that businesses pay in most distributions, they pay for energy, you know, the amount of energy that we all consume. We understand that. We all get utility bills at our homes. But then there's a second fee that's charged on the basis of the rate at which that power is drawn. So whatever the peak rate is in the course of a month, you can pay an additional fee. And that can be anywhere from $15 to $42 per kilowatt per increment of power. And that can account for 40 to sometimes 60% of the bill of a commercial building. So when you take a microgrid, you now take that beautiful solar, or you could take wind or geothermal, it doesn't matter, whatever the resource is, you store it in your microgrid storage. Again, mostly these are electrochemical batteries, but it could be any other resource. And now you pump that out at the same time frame, 5 to 9 or 4 to 9 p.m., because that's when the highest demand fees are in most places. So now that those electrons are now doing double duty, they're reducing the price of energy at its most expensive point in the day, but they're also reducing those secondary, what are called demand fees. That's called peak shaving or demand reduction. So now you're really putting these generation resources like solar to the optimal work. On top of that, you can do more with batteries and microgrids and even that. You can do what's called arbitrage. So that's where you buy energy from the utility at its cheapest, typically late at night, you know, midnight to 6 a.m., let's just say, for example, and you fill the batteries to a certain degree with those, you know, leave room for the solar to fill the rest. And then you use that power again at its most expensive point, typically late in the day or early evening. And you now are using cheap power to offset the most expensive power. So it's a bit like time shifting the solar, except that you're taking power from the utility and shifting when you use it instead of shifting your own solar or the like. And then lastly, I would say there's a whole panoply, a whole list of services that are emerging where microgrids can be paid by the utility or by the ISO. In California, we call it Cal ISO, and there's ERCOT and others around the country paid to do certain things to the utility's benefit. And the easiest one to understand, so some people call these ancillary services, and easiest by, one the to understand. The ISO is independent system operator. So those are the people pretty much working for the government, coordinating all the different utilities and power sources. Right. They're like a balancing entity. They take all the utilities, coordinate them together and make sure it's all working right. They're all interconnected to one another. So the ISO or the utility We'll have periods of time, like when we have these heat emergencies in the Southwest and across the Gulf Coast, you know, these terrible heat emergencies, everyone's air conditioning goes on. Well, now the utility can't meet that demand and it's putting strain on things. The utility actually puts out a call to producers of energy or systems like microgrids and says, if you can get rid of your some amount of your power draw at your location, we will pay you for that. And they pay actually quite handsomely. In some cases, people think that that's going to be the biggest revenue that these microgrids experience. So you're not actually pumping the power out to the utility. What you're saying is, we would normally demand X amount of power from the utility. Well, the utility wants us to cut that by half. Well, we're not going to turn half of our stuff off in our building. We need to run our business or our home. So we'll just have the batteries pump out the other half during the time frame that the utility does this. And then the utility will cut us a check for that. So that can be worth tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, depending on the size of the microgrid and the program that it participates in. So there's many other values that these microgrids have currently and will have in the future. The list is actually quite long. 
but it's really layering a cake of benefits on top of what you already recognize when you buy a solar system. You know, that's energy. That's great. But now you can actually leverage these things for much greater value and stand by. That's only going to get greater and greater as we incorporate things like hydrogen storage and hydrogen energy generation. Great. So I was also going to ask you, what kind of business are you looking for right now with Faraday microgrids? Are you too busy to even do things? Do you mostly want to focus on hospitals or hospitals and other things? What are you looking at? Also, you're developing equipment, right? You said you were a microgrid controller. So that's interesting. You could also be in the hardware manufacturing business or designing business. To take that backwards, the microgrid controller is really a software or firmware product that gets embedded in existing hardened PCs, but it's not per se a hardware product. So we're not really in the hardware space, but we definitely are in the software control space. We're wide open to develop, design, engineer, etc. You know, really, we can be what's called turnkey, right? We can take a project from conception through execution and operation, or we can do any of the pieces in between. Obviously, our greatest strength in history is in healthcare. And, you know, we've got a quite background in hospitals, clinics, and now we're working into skilled nursing facilities. But we also work in tribal communities. We've worked with food processors, and we're eager to work with food storage and and other critical facilities. In essence, it comes down to anyone who's a significant consumer of power that is paying what they believe to be too much in their operational cost for utility services and is looking for a way to reduce that, it's very easy for us to tell with a quick phone call and maybe looking at a couple of their bills, whether or not they could benefit from this. And our guiding principle is we're not assuming that every place can or should have a microgrid. We're actually looking to work with the places that are going to get the maximum benefit out of this. And we actually quite frequently will tell locations that there's other ways that they can achieve their goals. So not everyone is a, a monolith. We try to be sensitive to people's needs. But by way of example, we have pointed a few businesses towards simple tariff changes that have saved them enough money that they didn't need to go through the process of developing a microgrid, and they were perfectly happy with that. And we are too, because we're trying to serve the needs of the customer, not just you know sell, if you will. So Dave, how do you suggest that people find you on the internet, do business with you, or just get to meet you because you're such a nice guy? (laughs) That's kind of you to say. The easiest route to us is either to go to our website, which is conveniently Faraday, F-A-R-A-D-A-Y, microgrids, M-I-C-R-O-G-R-I-D-S dot com. So it is plural. They could also email me. It's my first initial last name. So D. B-L-I-S-S at Faraday, F-A-R-A-D-A-Y, micro, M-I-C-R-O dot com. And then they could always call our office at 949-305-7820 and either ask to speak with me or my son, Ryan, is the chief operating officer. So he's a great resource and often uh, customer facing. And so he's frequently more available too. So he's a great resource. But I would really encourage people to start with the website because there's a lot of material to learn about microgrids there. There's even a calculator tool that people can use to plug in some basic data about themselves and see if there might be an opportunity for them. But we're happy to work with them in whatever form that takes and look forward to talking to folks. Well, thank you, David Bliss. And also a special thanks to our buddy, Michael Faraday. I'll be (laughs) sure to order about five microgrids as soon as we get off the phone. 
And thanks for listening to Sean White's Solar and Energy Storage Podcast. To find out more, go to solarsean.com. Check out all my classes on the National Electrical Code and everything else. Get NAPSEP certified. solarsean.com.